5: Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is Ed Helms, and I played Andy
6: Bernard on The Office. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, this is The Office Deep Dive, in case you clicked on the Wrong Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, I am delighted to bring you my conversation with America's banjo-playing sweetheart, Ed Helms. Um, Now, a lot of people don't know this. Ed and I knew each other very well. I mean, very well. We went to the same high school. We went to the Westminster Schools in Atlanta, Georgia. We were in the same ensemble choir, I think, or chorale or something. Anyway, where we sang back when I pretended to sing, he still sings, but I, I don't, I don't sing so much anymore, but we had a bond and we're not just Georgians or Atlantans, we are those things, but we are from the same high school in the same area and grew up with the same people. So our history is very, very shared and Ed and I lost. We weren't in touch for a number of years. He was doing stand-up comedy and was on The Daily Show in New York. And I was traveling around doing theater and eventually landed in Los Angeles. And when we were shooting the webisodes, this would have been the summer of 2006. And uh, I was shooting a talking head. And suddenly, right behind the camera, I see Greg Daniels walk by, followed by Ed Helms and all I I can't even I don't even think at that moment oh that's actor Ed Helms or that's daily show correspondent Ed Helms I my mind goes that's why is Ed Helms here my friend from high school like that's all like he didn't call and tell me he was coming and uh, of course he was in the middle of an interview and tour with Greg Daniels uh, who he was meeting with about about coming on The Office starting in season three. Uh, So that was the first time I had seen him in a a long time. But, oh man, if you ever get a chance to spend an evening with Ed Helms, you will not be disappointed. He is joyful above all else, more than anyone else who was on the show or maybe anyone that I've ever met. He is a joyful, soulful person. Soulful I'm having trouble saying the word soulful But I think I got it the second time I don't know Here is Ed Helms
2: Bubble and squeak I love it Bubble and squeak I know Bubble and squeak I cook it every moment Left over from the night before
6: How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Oh, my God. It's so good to see you. Me too. You look so much older. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. All right. Here's your ginger snaps. What is that? That's so funny. I don't know why that's there. Maybe they're for your assistant.
3: Um, She just started a week and a half ago. And Do you not like ginger I've never, snaps? I've never had a conversation with her about ginger snaps. <laughs>
6: so, Do you like ginger so snaps? Good.
3: Well, sure. Who doesn't like ginger snaps? No, I know.
6: But is that like a thing that you ask for? No. When you go to work? Never. Never,
3: ever. Have I ever asked for ginger snaps?
6: Yeah. I don't know. How are you? When was the last time you were back in Atlanta? I haven't been to Atlanta in way
3: too long. I I did. Uh, I did. Three movies there over the last few years. Right. But I am getting a little homesick for Atlanta, which I never thought I'd say. Really? I'm very happy to be not living
6: there, but but I do like it when I go back now. Right. My last three years, I've shot movies in North Carolina, Mexico, and Columbus, Georgia. And Columbus, Georgia was by far the hottest. Yeah. Well, the hard part about... Hot weather in the
3: south, and I really hope we can stick with weather as a subject yeah, know, for this chat. Sorry.
6: I'm transitioning. sorry, I just it's good, no, to but see I you. love it.
3: No, honestly, it's, why it's fun to talk know, about Georgia. I know, <laughs> but, I know, I know. Well, um, we're both from there, but uh, it's it does, there's no reprieve like in LA or right. in, in desert climates or or like even in the northeast, it cools off at night, whereas in the south. There's no escape. Like, if you're in the shade, you're still muggy and hot. Yeah. And then when night comes, it's just a hot night. Right. It's not like a cool, like the temperature (laughs) does not go down. Right, exactly. Um, Autumn, yeah, Halloween is when I miss. Yeah. Miss Atlanta, because the the autumns there are so long. Yeah. They're so, it's so protracted. The trees are changing forever. That's when I get misty for.
6: Right. So you moved out of Atlanta. You went to the Northeast. Now, what were you doing right before you came onto the office?
3: I was on the daily show.
6: Yeah. Yeah. I'd been on the daily
3: show for four and a half years. And I had done a pilot for NBC for Kevin Riley. It was really fun. It was a multi-camera pilot that I, that the daily show let me kind of sneak away to do. Cause just a few weeks of work and it did not get picked up but it was a ton of fun and then it went really well and kevin riley was uh i guess he liked he liked me so he so we he made a talent deal with me at nbc it's funny i you know i remember i remember being at the daily show and 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 i knew steve from the daily show you worked with him yeah we we overlapped not very much but enough that you know that we were acquaintances uh, we overlapped probably five or six months or something. And then I just remember getting word that he was going to do the office and just thinking like, that is so perfect. That is going to be so good. So you knew the British version of it. Oh, the I was, yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm a comedy nerd and was very much in the comedy universe. And, uh, and so then the idea of, I mean, Steve's character on the on the Daily Show was at its best when he was of sort of a version of Michael Scott, like not self aware, kind of uh, usually less informed than everyone around him. Um, he was brilliant on the Daily Show because he really kind of pioneered the form of daily show segments in which the correspondent is the butt of the jokes as opposed to. Really, just making fun of somebody else. Right. Making, which, yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is easy and mean spirited usually. It's kind of shooting fish in a bucket and it's not as interesting. But Steve kind of really shifted that and found this way of being kind of an idiot news reporter. And that was so funny and fresh and, uh, and still able to get great satire into the pieces. Um,
6: that's true. Often he played like, the pseudo expert or the, you know, know, the, the teacher in a way that then became. Yeah. Yeah. Just confident about the wrong things. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And,
3: and so that's why when I heard he was going to do the office, I I just was like that. I mean, yes, Ricky Gervais is a genius. This version will also be great. Uh, And then it was, and what's crazy, I think I told you this recently too, is that was a so around that time, I was just sort of looking for my exit strategy from the Daily Show. I I loved working there, but I knew that I had to just shake things up because I was really starting to feel like in a rut. So I was auditioning for a lot of things, and I did. I got I auditioned for the the Office, like the original cast
6: of the Office. You aud and you
3: auditioned for Jim, is that right? I yes, I'm almost positive that I auditioned for Jim. Okay. Yeah, and you know. Obviously, it would have been a better show if I were Jim. Clearly, but <laughs> clearly. <laughs> um, but wow, uh, you, this was in—you were in New York. Yeah, it was in New York City, and, and and you know, I went to Thirty Rock at the, the casting office there, and I forget the casting director's name. It was the head of casting for NBC in New York. In New York, yeah. Um, yeah, and I just went in. It was I was I, I was excited about it because I knew the British version, but I wasn't super optimistic or anything and i i don't remember it being an especially good or bad audition i just kind of went in and uh i'd love to see the tape (laughs) i don't know if it's out there if we can find it yeah that would be so so great i know that but like i've seen mine yeah rain and jenna's and i've seen a, a few of them out there but that's so crazy Isn't that funny
6: i'll ask allison jones um so okay so then so you don't get Jim. Don't get Jim. It's just
3: sort of back to business as usual at the Daily Show. Right. I'm trying to cultivate some ideas to bring back to NBC maybe just, you know, on the off chance that they'd take a shot on developing a real show with me. And I was out here for some reason and Word came down, "Why don't you meet with Greg and just have a chat?" Uh, and so I went in and we had a chat and it was great i remember greg had seen this short that i did with my friend nick poppy called zombie american and it was a it was basically a, a mockumentary about a zombie just trying to get out on the dating scene and all the sort of um, <laughs> all the pitfalls of be, like why being a zombie is like a What's li- the problem? is a liability yeah. on the on the dating scene and uh, it was you know a tiny little short with no budget, but we spent all the money on the zombie makeup. So it was like a hard commitment to full on prosthetic zombie, which made it super funny because I, I the character was just a guy talking to the camera and you know talking about how like it's awkward on a date when your finger falls <laughs> off or or um, or when people you, you show up for a blind date and they see you from afar and turn and walk away and 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 it was like a this really poignant, very real, but also obviously very silly right. piece. And it's it was like a 10-minute short. And Greg had seen that. I don't know how it was not out there, but um, he'd he gotten his hands on it. That, I think, was probably the my best foot forward as an Office character because it was talking heads to the camera. Right. It was small performance. It was very – it was just it totally in the same family as The Office. So – that was part of the conversation, and then they, then he and Paul, Paul Lieberstein came in, and he started talking about this character Andy, Connecticut yacht club, spoiled, and obviously we're not from Connecticut, right? We're not from yacht clubs, <laughs> but we're from you know we went to a prep school in Atlanta with I think kids that are totally analogous to Andy Bernard, sure. And so it was a type that I understood immediately. White yeah. white belt with the yes. yeah, just like yeah, loafers, a braided white belt, and polos, and it, so you knew that. So yeah, we just started talking about it, and, and it and it was making us laugh and pitching kind of like, oh, yeah, he probably took sailing lessons, but uh, never passed the test that allows you to actually take sailboats out from the yacht club because he just wasn't good at, I don't know, just yeah. like dumb, fun stuff that we, we were laughing about it. And then I went back to work at the Daily Show and got the call that, hey, we're going to do a couple of episodes, you know, in this Scranton off I mean, in the, um, Stanford. In the Stanford office. And I was told it would be two months of work. They had in mind eight episodes, I think. Okay. So I went to my EP at The Daily Show and I said, look, this is Steve's show. It's in the family. Right. What do you say? Can I go and do this? It's two months. It's a long time. This was also right around the time that Colbert had left to do the Colbert Report It just was kind of a fraught time for correspondents at The Daily Show, Um, and they were very skittish about it. And they were like, "I just we don't think we can let you go." You know, it's there's a lot going on in the world. (laughs) Like we just need, and and I was very, I was very disappointed, but you know, tried to kind of understand that, and it put me in this bind where I was like, I can either resign from the daily show for two months of work right or turn down the office. And my analysis was, well, I've been on the daily show for four and a half years. There's nothing I can do on this show now that's gonna like change how I'm perceived out there. I'll get better and better and do hopefully do funnier and funnier stuff, but it's not no one's gonna see that I can act. No one's going to see that I can do other stuff. Right. And The Office was not a hit at this point either. Like right. it was, it was a, it was like a very, a show that I loved, but I, it was by no means like a sure thing. Sure, to, of course. To jump into. But I just decided it was worth the risk. And I had to, I had like, even if I only worked for those eight weeks, I would have a really good new thing. So I took the plunge and, The rest is history, as they say.
0: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever.
6: So Greg talked to me about the idea of Andy in Stamford as being basically to Jim Dwight in Scranton, right? But with a whole different demeanor, right? Like you talked about, preppy East Coast, WASPy, little Ivy, yeah, um, but incompetent, an idiot, but in in a totally different way than the Trans Am heavy metal. Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) weird nerd in in Scranton, right? Were you aware of that?
3: I don't think I understood at that time exactly how analogous Stanford was supposed to be to Scranton. And I didn't think too hard about it because it was really interesting because this, we shot, obviously all of our stuff was on the, on another set and we didn't interact with you guys much at all during that time, just by virtue of the fact that we were shooting on separate stages at different times and different stories and all that stuff. So I really felt like we were in our own show. Like we were kind of doing our own thing. um, And it was instantly the most fun thing I'd ever done. Like it was instant. It just was so joyful. Rashida and I were kind of the new kids. Like we, we were a little, click that kind of had each other's back the writers were clearly having fun with our characters which is the best i mean that's when it's you're really having fun the writers were showing up to set and joking around with us and john was i mean john he obviously was such a stalwart of the show at that and and a central character so his disposition towards us really mattered I think to us and to our kind of like self-esteem coming into this and he could not have been more warm and fun and playful and but like having the confidence of somebody who had been there a couple years or a couple, you know I guess it was really just a year it was two seasons two but, seasons yeah um we just gelled and we instantly having fun and making each other
6: laugh um a lot it just felt great. Yeah. I never thought about this before until you started talking that it's almost as though John, in the middle of doing a show, basically had a spinoff that then was still a part of the same show, right? Like a spinoff yeah. is taking a character and going and creating another show around that character in a different environment. Well, and in a way, that's what was happening. I I think, looking back,
3: I, I mean... I think that that was a test of a, of an actual spinoff. Right. But I don't, I mean, I'm not in Greg's head. I don't know the answer to that. I've never asked him that. Right. But I, years later, looking back, it just seemed like it was just like a setup for a spinoff. It's, it's the way sitcoms at that time were spinning shows off. Like you, you put someone in a new environment and all of a sudden introduce new characters and then all of a sudden, like, they're in a new time slot. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, but, uh but I don't know. I don't know if that's yeah. true or not. But you're you're right. It did it was kind of a classic spin-off move. It just wound up re kind of merging back into
6: the into the original show. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about and you hear about The Office, you think of the Office as being sort of in a place of stasis, right? That there's the bullpen. Yeah. And that's what the office is. And people get used to that and people like that. And They don't typically like it when something changes. Mm -hmm. But I felt like what Greg did, he kept, whether it was conscious or not, creating sort of a new kinetic energy by disrupting, by making Jim go to Stanford, by making Pam go to art school, you know, and that helped the momentum of the show. And I think
3: provided a stark relief of, for comparison, because like you were saying before, it really was an analog chip as the boss was so different from Michael Scott. Like he was, he was sort of like the cool jock boss. Right. Right. But, but problematic for other reasons, you know, like wanting to play call of duty all the time. (laughs) Right. Uh, and then I, my, my character being sort of like a Dwight analog, as you said, but totally different Rashida being a romantic, competitor. Potential. It's all yeah. like, I yeah, I think it it's just served to really heighten all of what was great about Scranton.
6: Yeah. So at some point you are told that you're going to stick around and now you're going to come in and join Scranton. Yeah. How was that transition?
3: So I can't remember when it became clear that I was going to stick around. If it was before we did started doing episodes in Scranton or after, cause I think Andy's departure to anger management was sort of like the end of my agreed upon time. I, I, I'm, I can't quite remember all that timeline, but I will say this, those first few episodes in the Scranton office was like, it's like a little kid walking into Yankee stadium. Like even though the show wasn't huge, it was huge to me and I loved it. And I loved what everybody was doing. And I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And so to walk in onto that set and actually have lines and have like fun stuff to do, I just felt like I, I was in the major leagues and uh, in it, but not in an intimidating way, in a like supported way. And um, you guys, were, everyone was so cool, right? <laughs> it just was such a great. Group
6: of people. Yeah. Uh, it was just fun. Well, and, and you know, now hearing more of the specifics of your story early on, I mean, we were all a group of actors that had had minimal to no success in television and film at that point from varying degrees. Mm-hmm. Like, Six months before, I was doing theater and was right. just just starting, <laughs> right? And you know, Steve had done obviously The Daily Show, but when even when Steve was on, it was kind of before The Daily Show was cool, cool. Yeah, it was the the, it was the Bush him,
3: administration that really I think launched it. I mean, Craig Kilborn was great, great. I and I was a fan from then. But again, that's just because I'm a comedy nerd. I think in the zeitgeist,
6: it really was George Bush that kind of catapulted The Daily Show. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, everybody I think had the attitude that they had because no one seemed bigger than anybody else. You know, there Mm -hmm. wasn't the structure that exists where there's the star and there's the kind of star and there, you know, like everybody was kind of figuring it out. And as the show started to pick up and we were all sort of a part of that together.
3: um, Yeah. Oh, I remember that, that year. So I got kind of officially brought into the cast and was in the regular season after anger, anger management. I was just there. I was like part of the show and the Emmys were around that time. And that year, the daily show and the office won Emmys (laughs) for best show and i was like i'm doing something right (laughs) (laughs) this is going pretty good yeah uh but that was uh that was really fun that was and the emmys of course was such a fun thing for the cast and everybody just oh man those are those are great the salad days the salad days good times
6: How much do you think the character of Andy is like you, Ed? Well,
3: <laughs> I would say that not very. He's not very much like me, but only because I'm I have better editing mechanisms for my own behavior, but I think a lot of Andy's impulses and instincts are, you know, I relate to. Um, he's just not self-aware enough to put a check on them. There are things that I actually really envy about Andy that I wish I was more like. Um, And the Angela storyline really, I think, brought that out. That that was a thing that made me, I mean, I always kind of loved Andy's douchebaggery from a comedy standpoint. It was just fun and ridiculous. But the Angela stuff, I like just seeing him really put his heart on his sleeve I felt that's when I really fell in love with this this character and I and that's something that I I've always struggled with maybe it's part of just our southern upbringing but like expressing emotions <laughs> in real ways and being transparent and being you know just chasing something that you love and that means a lot to you it's that was Uh, That's that was hard for me. It was hard for me to kind of mature in that way. Uh, And Andy is just—he's the best. Like that's the—he's he fell in love with Angela and was like, "This is it. I'm all in. And I love you." And he and everybody knew it. And he there was no shame. There was no kind of reticence. And I I think I, I just always loved that about Andy. And I think that his rage was a kind of the flip side of that like he just wasn't able to kind of control the expression of his emotions uh and sometimes when he should have and it had beautiful consequences in his, in some of his romantic relationships and then obviously devastating consequences in
6: in other <laughs> ways right but i think that that's what you know greg and the other writers And you obviously in creating that character and, and, and everybody, but you know, we talked a lot about, or I've talked a lot about the more specific the characters are drawn, the more universal they become. And so you think, oh, let's paint in broad strokes. This is generally who this guy is. Right. Yeah. And it's, the white braided belts and the polo shirts and that's who that guy is. Okay. I get Andy. That's, that's who Andy is, but no, he had one of the biggest hearts on the show and was able to express that in a really specific, true, genuine way. And that, that dichotomy and complexity, I feel like made him really real and lovable. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're
3: onto something specificity which I think a lot of comedy writers sometimes shy away from because the, the the instinct is, like, the more specific I draw a character, the more people won't relate to that character. But it's the opposite. Like, to your point, it is the exact opposite. And I think of, like, I was just having this conversation with a, a writer the other day about how John Hughes movies were, you know, on paper – John Hughes shot all his movies in Glencoe, Illinois, which is one of the most affluent suburbs in the country. I mean, all mansions, all beautiful lawns, everything, you know, it shouldn't be relatable. Right. Right. That should be, that should be alienating to everybody. And yet there's so much specificity in those characters. And that's what people find themselves in that specificity because audiences say, You know, I may not understand how a teenager can drive a BMW, but I can understand how that character is devastated by that breakup that they're having or, or the fact that the way that they're acting out or the way that, um, this little passion that they have is getting made fun of by their friends or whatever.
6: It's, it's the, the, those details allow more people to connect hundred percent. Um, you talked about your relationship with, with Angela, um, and how that's how you began to fall in love with Andy. Um, do you think that his, well, the fact that he was a cuckold, like did that begin to make him more sympathetic to audiences as well? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, that was a pretty
3: sly move, I think, on the on Greg's part. I'm trying to kind of tap back into my my thoughts at the time. It, it it felt really fun to unleash that part of Andy because so much of what he did was antagonistic and sort of confrontational or passive-aggressive. And for him to, have po- to be putting positive energy out there, even though it was so misplaced or so, well, it was misapplied to Angela, that was so fun. And it just, it made, it's part of what I think Positive energy makes someone like, makes an audience like a character.
6: Right. Um, You don't get Angela, and then Aaron shows up. Talk a little bit about that relationship, because I didn't remember that your love for her or your initial fascination starts like the first day she's there. It's like, oh, well, there's... There's a new one in the office. Let's go for her. We've got no baggage with this person.
3: We can write our own story. Let's start from scratch. Here we go. Uh, yeah, uh, that's
6: yeah, that's great. Um, uh, I, I think that in thinking about it, that the Andy and Aaron storyline becomes, you know, kind of a parallel with what was happen- What happened with Jim and Pam earlier. Mm. It just had a slightly more absurdist bent to it mm. there were still tender moments there was still that longing on both sides um but I think that I don't know talk about that a little bit if if you recall your approach to it or did the writers talk to you about where that relationship was going to go from the beginning or no I don't
3: think so I, I don't think there was a uh an arc spelled out early on but you know, Aaron's energy was just so funny, and it felt right for Andy in a way. Both of them being very left-footed socially kind of uh, made them perfect for each other, but also, like, gave them lots of stumbling. You know, it's like a pigeon-toed person dancing with a bow-legged person. Like, does this, it looks like an egg beater. Like, is this, this is weird. Right. Um, and I guess... um It just felt right and fun, and then there was a lot of, um, obviously, just a lot of complication that I think emerged in ways that Andy and Aaron sabotaged the relationships and their their own relationship in different ways. Um, I loved that chapter. I don't. I don't remember exactly how it wound down, but I remember being a little confused about sort of like how how that storyline kind of got wrapped up, and I, and I and I I think I remember not enjoying the ep- shooting the episodes as much where we were in conflict, you know, when there was like real bad stuff happening between Andy and Aaron, it wasn't as fun. Like it just, but I mean, that's. That's just an actor complaining, <laughs> like, right? Um, but I think uh, there was something so breezy and simple and and natural about just kind of goofing off with Aaron, and finding that comedy was very fun. And then later on, tapping into darker parts of these characters that, like I said, they sabotage the relationship in different ways. Felt a little harder to make funny or harder to make silly, and hmm. um, but yeah.
6: Um, in the New York Times, Paul said about you and Andy, he had so much in common with this character we wanted to create. I can't remember when they started merging. He has this undeniable likability when he's at his most awful, you can't help but love the guy. think that's true? About me or about Andy? Both.
3: <laughs> well, I do. I that's a a really flattering thing. And that's uh, and it speaks to what a sweet and wonderful person Paul is. but i that is my greatest hope for the character of Andy, that that he can be kind of wretched, but in a way that you can tell is in spite of himself, and that he really does want to be better you know, that's the part I think I connect with the most and feel like is the most I have the most in common with Andy is like, I, I, I stumble through the world socially and in relationships and all of it. I think like most of us, I just, I, I always am frustrated at myself when I screw it up, whatever it is. And whether it's a simple social interaction or a, a big, meaningful thing in my life, whatever it is. I, I but I want to be better. I just want to be better. And I try to be better and I still fail a lot. Um, it's why I'm so grateful to everyone in my life who loves me <laughs> <laughs> because it's always way am stumbling through all of it. But, um, Andy at his core wants to be good. Like he wants to be a good person. He wants to say the right thing. And, uh, only occasionally does he nail it right there's times where Andy was not just beautiful in his expressions of love but sometimes really tender and like a good listener right and that's not something we associate with Andy Bernard at all but those are those are moments where i think his better angels are really intervening and kind of guiding him because and but they're there like his his desire to be better and his instincts are constantly fighting his reactionary impulses.
6: Alright, we're going to stop there for now. Sorry. I know. Ed is amazing to listen to. And what I love is the love that he has for Andy Bernard. You know, there were a lot of people who didn't love Andy Bernard, but Ed Helms loved Andy Bernard, and that is the sign of a true artist and and great actor. Uh, Lesson. Lesson one from me. Never, ever judge your characters. Just find a way to fall in love with them. Uh, But we are going to hear more from Ed uh, in an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. Thank you uh, to Ed for joining me for part one, although you'll you'll be back for part two. Uh, And thank you all Uh, for listening. We will see you next week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth... Is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton, and the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky.